Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. Uh, We're pleased once again to be partnering with FIS on this episode. Uh, They continue to be a great sponsor for us. And uh, we're going to get into some really interesting research. I think it is timely because um, when we look around the world at what is happening in the banking and financial services landscape, there's some interesting divergence here. You know, first of all, um, we, we certainly saw out of the UK market a big um, change in customer expectations around the launch of the various uh, challenger banks in that market. And that is now why you have a significant portion. I think the latest data is like one in four Britons you know, gets their salary paid into a, a challenger bank, bank account which, you know, would have sort of been unthinkable a few years ago. You have Newbank, who is quite profitable, did a quarter of a billion dollars worth of profit last year, um, now um, by far the largest bank in Latin America with 83 million customers. Um, and I'm interested in exploring, you know, when we look at investment that happens at a corporate level, why is it that we're seeing these sort of exceptional experiences come from new players, uh, mobile wallet plays, you know, these di- non-traditional players versus what we see actually in terms of innovation that's coming out of the financial services, uh, the more traditional financial services space. So to help us with this topic, we're going to invite a couple of people from FIS. We have uh, DeAndre Jones. He's the Chief Client Officer for FIS Banking Solutions. DeAndre, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thanks. Thank you, Brett. Glad to be here. Good to have you with us. Um, and we also have John Stuckey, who's the Senior Director for Product Retail Solutions at FIS. John, welcome. Thanks, Brett. Good to talk to you. First of all, um, maybe I'll start with you, John. If you can frame this report for us. I know this, uh, you know, the main research uh, un- unveils this sort of misalignment between end user priorities and where the innovation or investment innovation is happening in the financial services space. But help help us frame why you went down the path of doing this research and, and really what, what, uh, what it led to. Sure. We can talk briefly about what the survey was. So we surveyed and interviewed 4,000 consumers across the U.S. and the U.K., alongside about 800 um, financial services executives to really understand, from one perspective, what the consumers were telling us were their highest priorities and what they were looking for from financial services capabilities, and then matching that up against what the financial service executives were telling us that they were investing in. And all of that within the background of what's been going on in the financial markets with inflation and recession um, and trying to understand how all of these things interplayed to meet those needs of the consumers. Yeah, that that makes sense. And and so, you know, I I think, um, you know, from your point of view, how would you think that executives generally, um, how aware are they of this misalignment, do you think? 
Um, I don't think that they, I don't personally believe that they are very aware of it right now. I think, unfortunately, there probably isn't enough of this sort of voice of the customer work going on in our industry today. Um, I think that they're, they're reviewing a lot of the new technologies that are being talked about broadly and in some of the trade mags and in trade podcasts and such, but that's informing their decisions as opposed to the voice of the customer. And when you actually talk to the customer, you start to see where that misalignment is. Well, DeAndre, um, uh, you know, let's get into some specifics. Uh, you know, what what really was some of the clear advice from consumers or, or feedback from consumers, uh, you know, the end users in terms of what their expectations were? You know, those expectations around simplification, that's coming out loud and clear. Like, how do we streamline? How do things get easier for us to use? And you think about most consumers, when you pull up those smart devices, right, whether they're using Apple or Android or whatever else they may be utilizing, and you see a number of different apps, I don't see those apps going away anytime soon. But what they are saying is, wow, it's still overwhelming. And you click down into that, specifically around their financial lives, right? The average consumer is looking at a number of even financial apps. How do I make this easier? How does this get easier for me to navigate this in one specific platform? And that's that's sort of what everyone's sort of t- t- sort of battling right now. Hmm. You know, um, looking at the uh, um, explosion of wallet tech around the world. You know, not only do we have Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay. Um, you know, in, 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 you know, foreign markets, you've got Paytm, um, you've got M-Pesa, MTN Money, you know, you've got all these mobile wallet schemes now to the point where, you know, the, the World Pay Research and others show that by, um, you know, 2025, it's going to be like 55% of all commerce transactions will be wallets versus a plastic card or cash, right? Um, but that's interesting that you're saying about the financial wellness and, and financial awareness piece, because that's something that I think wallets have, have created that expectation for. Um, I don't know. Do you guys agree with that observation? Yeah, you know, I, I do actually, you know, when it comes to the importance of financial wellness today, we've seen that both on the consumer banking side, as well as the small business banking side that's what they've said that they're craving they said help Mm. us help us get access to insights about how we spend our money and what solutions that are out there that can help us um spend spend our money smarter and handle our finances more efficiently and they're asking for those tools and they're asking for those Mm. tools to be delivered to them um side by side you know give us dashboards where we may have elements of financial insights that typically would have required three separate applications in moving back right. and forth from application to application. And they're saying, please put that together, help us make those connections for us so that we can we can improve our financial wellness. For sure, we're seeing that. You know, th- this is an interesting um, element of, of consumer psychology when it comes to finance, actually. Um, and I'll, I'll share with you guys, if you don't, don't mind, when we were building Move-In, you know, the, the, which was the first mobile challenger bank in the U.S., um, you know, w- we had this focus on the smart bank account that helped you save money. And so, so to do that, the feedback loop was fairly simple. You know, every time you did a transaction, we categorized it. We told you whether you were above or below your typical spending and the core banking app, you know, it would turn red or orange when you were spending more than you usually do versus green, you know, when you were spending less. So very visual traffic like um, approach this. But, you know, when you look at traditional banking, 
you heard a lot of talk about financial literacy being the entry point into the financial um, system, you know, in terms of products and understanding, you know, your options and things like that. But actually what you're saying is that customers are just, just want to be able to manage their money a bit better and they expect that that's a basic function a bank should have, that a bank should help them save more money over time, right? Would that be a fair argument? It is a fair argument, for sure. And, and I think that those vendors that are providing those solutions are, are winning in the marketplace. And those that don't have it are, are really falling to the wayside because what will happen is if you're a bank, for example, and you're delivering those sorts of services as part of your solutions, you're keeping your clients. If you're not, you're losing them to fintechs and challenger banks. Yeah. yeah. I'd agree. I'd, I think what was once a point of difference has quickly become table stakes. And so, if, if you, you, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, um, you know, uh, this, as you say, this table stakes right now. Um, but, you know, let, let's talk about moving forward with this, because if we're going to be really intuitive when it comes to creating these embedded, um, you know, financial wellness sort of, you know, let's, let's call it a smart bank account that helps you manage your money, right? For one of a better terminology. If we're going to create that, we're going to be using artificial intelligence. And so, um, you know, a lot of this speaks to where the investment should be going to ensure that you can provide these types of experiences that are differentiated. Because just providing a dashboard today is not going to necessarily differentiate you. But using AI, well, that could. Um, what, where does it come, uh, DeAndre, uh, in terms of like the, the future-facing technology and where you see this going? How do those expectations look a few years down the road? I think AI is going to be the key to improving the experience and taking it to the next level. And in fact, when you think about the survey results, it, the, the way for financial institutions to come back and say, we actually hear, we, we hear you and we understand we're making this investment in this space because it's going to ultimately be the tool and the tools that are going to help sort of solve this problem that, that you have. So when it comes to simplification in one platform, right, you can simplify things, but you're going to need those insights to help you utilize your money right back to the financial wellness piece. You're going to need those insights to help you understand risk and pitfalls, even as a consumer. AI is going to be able to help with those things, especially as we get better, faster, more nimble within these organizations at creating that best customer experience utilizing AI. Interesting. Um, you, you, you guys mentioned this was a global, uh, um, survey or global focus. Was there anything that came out in the research that differed by geographies? There was, it was us and UK. So those two markets, what, what we found the biggest differences, I think were primarily in the impact that the financial services executives were seeing, um, based on what's going on with inflation, recession, et cetera. So that was having a greater impact on the in the U.S. back in May when the survey was conducted, um, and therefore when we when we surveyed consumers and executives alike, it showed a much higher percentage of them being drastically impacted in how they made their decisions based on those you know market economic conditions. Right. Um, right. Similar in the U.K., but to a lesser degree. So less flexibility on where the tech should go because of the geopolitical concerns and so forth. And, 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 what, and of course, things like, you know, regulation, which has a, a huge impact on uh, traditional 
um, players in terms of IT cost alone, right? You know, one of the things that I noted when I was thinking about it is the more that the economic conditions impact your ability to invest, the more important it is that you get your investment right, right? If we were all living in a, in a much um, higher end of the cycle for the economic conditions, then investing with more of a broad brush would probably be fine from the standpoint of those financial executives. But when dollars are tight, it's really important that they focus in on those things that the consumers are really looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, you can't go wrong investing in AI necessarily, but, um, you know, one of the challenges in sort of trying to chase that, you know, ever, ever accelerating innovation curve, you know, it is, you, you, there's sort of not an end to that process. So it's not like you can sort of prioritize, you know, one part of the puzzle and, and we'll worry about other investments we need later on. You've got to be sort of continuously adapting um, throughout the process a bit. Do you, do you do you see in terms of the executive's voice that um, generally speaking, there's more of acceptance that innovation is just the status quo now, you know, continuous innovation or um is it still a bit in fits and starts? Yeah, I, I certainly do. And I, what I think about right now is back to what John said several minutes ago, is that that voice of the customer is going to be really important. And those who can create the opportunities to where they can infuse the innovation from their customers, but also their internal colleagues are going to be those that create that new point of difference. So those executives who don't abandon innovation, but really get on board with it and create the internal vessel centers of aspiration, whatever we want to call it, to be able to enable it faster. I think they're going to have the leg up going forward. Yeah. Um, John, do, do you have any follow-up? Well, one thing you've mentioned AI a few times, and it's interesting. In our survey, when you looked at the consumers, they had AI listed very low in terms of things that they're interested in. But let's dig a little deeper on that, right? So within the financial tech space, we executives in, in product and management are spending time thinking about those use cases where we can leverage AI to really make a difference for consumers. In a survey, when a consumer has just said, is AI important to you? They don't have any context. Well, what's it going to do? Right, for, right, right? exactly. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think you're actually right. Well, the survey may show AI as having low interest among consumers. We all know it's how you're going to leverage the layout, the AI in a way that can really drastically change things. And then how you present that to the, to the consumer is going to be important. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'll give you a couple of use cases I put in Bank 4.0. Um, one, one is when you are, you know, if you look at mortgage shopping in the future, um, and you think about the application in smart glasses. So, um, suddenly now, if I know you're, you're intending to buy a home, you know, and I, as an OS provider, I'd probably know that based on search history and so forth, right. Then I can now anticipate if you're going into a listed real estate property that you probably want to consider your home fine, you know, mortgage options or financing options. So I can present that to you in your head up display as you walk into a listed real estate property. But if you're a bank waiting for a customer to come and ask for a mortgage, right, then you may miss the entire process in the future because of that sort of, um, we might call it embedded tech or embedded finance stuff, but contextual behavioral stuff or, you know, um, 
you know, we, we're, so we're already starting to see people play with that. So I think as a consumer, if you, if I could tell you, I would give you functionality in your bank account or in your wallet so that I could tell you if there's certain bills that you've got coming up that you won't be able to afford to pay, would you want that advice? Most consumers would go, of course, yes, I'd love that. Um, without thinking that there's a lot of data science and, and AI based on you know, giving you that response or that result, right? So I get what you're saying. Or, or the flip side, which we've seen, which is, um, you know, I've done a lot of work with cash flow forecasting for small businesses, right. right? And so people tend to only think about if your cash flow is forecasted to go negative, you know, I want the bank to offer me a loan. Right. But you also, if you're a consumer or you're a small business, and you see that cyclically, you end up at times when you've got excess cash flow. Right. Banks should be offering opportunities to roll that into an interest-bearing account or an investment account. And all of that should be the AI in the background, looking across yes. the history of the transactions yes. and feeding that info in. So um, I'll give you two quick ones. Um, f- first of all, Yui Bao, it, which is the most successful savings product we've ever seen, was a savings feature in the Alipay mobile wallet. And all it did is prompt people and saying, you've got some hidden treasure in your wallet, you should have it in a savings feature. Right. And that's the most successful savings product we, we've seen in history. But we used to A-B test this stuff, the behavioral stuff around savings. And at Movin, you know, we use nudges to say, hey, you've got you know, more money in your account than usual, you should probably stick it in your savings bucket. Um, but we found one day of the week and one particular time of day that beat any other time of the week for getting people to put money in their savings bucket. Do you want to guess what it was? What was it? It was Thursday morning between 6 a.m. and like 10, 10 a.m. Um, and the psychology goes is that if you prompt someone to save at that time, they're sort of thinking about it potentially. They're thinking about what they're going to do on the weekend, but they haven't committed to any spend on the weekend yet. So it's reasonable for them to set something aside. But by Friday, they probably have committed to doing something on the weekend. Or and have that's some so non-intuitive that you need those tools on the back end to help you identify that. Yeah, type. exactly. So that's really, that's what I'm saying is that um, if you're looking forward to better ways of managing your money and helping people with that function of their life, that intuitiveness really comes from data models, behavioral models, you know, things like that, particularly if you want to get it highly personalized. So um, very, very interesting. Anyway, I know we got a little bit off the track. So what, what about best practice in respect to companies looking to leverage this tech? Um, you know, um, like the banking as a service stuff you've mentioned, but, you know, where are we looking for now in terms of that best practice? Specific to banking as a service and embedded finance? Oh, well, just just generally in the space in terms of what you surveyed. Yeah. Um, So let's let's talk for a second about what was the the biggest tech item that was focused on, which was the the all-in-one financial services piece, right? And you've heard people talk about super apps before. And, and I think that pretty quickly almost got a, a bad reputation in the industry. People said super apps. I'm not sure if I believe in that or not. But I, but I'll tell you what has proven- I think that's be- a, I think that might, I mean, it might be a little bit of a Western view. Like I know where, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, I spent six months a year in Bangkok. And so if you're in Indonesia or Bangkok or in China, I think people have quite a different view of super apps. But yeah, I think 
in a Western view, we've not really got any really super successful super apps in the West. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, so what I've seen in the U.S. market is less anyone trying to take on that full view of a super app and instead trying to figure out how to break down some of the barriers between banks and fintechs and challenger banks. Um, using some of the financial service providers like, like an FIS, for example, to help break down some of those walls. And that becomes enabled by things like fully cloud-enabled products, APIs, um, embedded service, open banking. And so what we've seen is both sides of it, both from an embedded um, finance perspective, how can we enable using APIs to allow banks to push their services outward to fintechs? which is a market that we're all familiar with. But then the flip side where banks have started to look at that and say, okay, I'm gonna play in the banking as a service space, but I also wanna keep the eyes of the consumer within my platform. And to do that, I have to adjust. And the way I adjust is I start becoming more friendly with being able to present third-party FinTechs directly out to my consumers in a way that's seamless, that allows for some of that um, cross-pollination of insights and information. And that's something that I'm, I'm heavily focused on trying to support, both, both on the consumer side and on the business side. And it's resonating really well with banks who know mm. that they do need to do something there. Okay, so John, here's one for you, right? Um, if, if we look at uh, the traditional way banks thought about serving their customers is most banks had a goal for being the dominant bank for their customer relationship. We used to call this concept the primary financial institution in banking. But what we see today is that, um, you know, a lot more people are setting up their second or third bank account on the side. They'll, you know, have that for specific purposes. Millennials and Gen Z tend to think of their, you know, financial services selection like they do apps on their phone, you know, it's just they'll pick something uh, that's purpose-built for whatever they need at the time. Is there anything that um, indicates support for that shift um, it, from the data that you see in the survey that customers are, you know, are not as married to having a single banking relationship anymore. We, we have definitely seen that. That's absolutely true, again, both on the consumer and small business side. And what we've seen then in a shift with banks is they've started to be comfortable even acknowledging the fact that their consumers do have maybe second and third accounts that held away at third-party banks. And so what we've done with them is said, okay, let's acknowledge it and start to provide tools that allows the consumer to see all of those accounts, whether it's your right. bank or two additional banks, give them that entire view. By doing that, by the way, by having that single view, you've put yourself back in that primary position because mm -hmm. you're the one place where they can go to see everything. And so getting comfortable in allowing, both acknowledging that consumers are going to do this, not being afraid of it, allowing them to view and move money between all of those things, I think improves their position in the long run with those consumers. Mm, interesting. I think that sort of supermarket approach, you, you know, you do have now uh, like, um, you know, what uh, Starling has done in the UK was sort of approach that JP Morgan is doing a lot of partnerships with, with FinTech. They find it's faster and cheaper to do it that way. So um, there's a lot more collaboration that's possible on these platforms. But interestingly in China, when the wallets started really causing havoc over there, the central bank required the wallets to open up so that they could get, the banks could get the transaction data from the fintechs. 
Okay. So sort of reverse open banking, if you like, right? Um, very interesting to see. All right. So if you um, have found this conversation interesting and you want to get into more of the detail um, to look at the key findings, um, we're going to tweet out uh, both of the links to FIS Global for the US and the UK uh, versions of the report. But if you want to search for this, uh, put in your search engine, consumers want an all-in-one platform to manage their finances with FIS tagged. Or if you're in the UK, UK financial service providers appear more resilient to turbulent market conditions, and you'll be able to track down the report with search there. So uh, that's uh, that's an easy way to to find it. Um, so John, uh, where can people find out more about you know, generally the research you're providing and and more about your part of the FIS practice, or how do they get in touch with you? I think if they reach out to us at info at fisglobal.com or out to the fisglobal.com website, they'll be able to reach in and those those questions and, and inquiries will be directed to us. Fantastic. And um, you're on LinkedIn or you? I am. I'm on LinkedIn okay. under John right, Stuckey cool. at FIS. Okay. And DeAndre, uh, you're the same, right? You've got, I mean, not the same, but you're on LinkedIn. Yes. DeAndre Jones, FIS. Well, thank you both for uh, coming on the show today. Um, you know, I think it is interesting. I think, you know, when we look globally, you know, I, I would say, you know, all of the fastest growing financial institutions in the world today are digital. Um, you know, that's a function of cheaper and faster acquisition cycles. And uh, if you look at the new tech that's coming out and sort of the leading edge thinking, often it's coming from these new players. So, um you know, we're going to continue to see these new entrants in the market really set customer expectations. And unless banks are doing a lot of partnering with these organizations, it appears like they might be playing catch up for some time. So I know I, I read a lot into the report there, but it's putting my own disruptor spin on it. But um, DeAndre and John, thanks for joining us on Breaking Banks today. Thanks for having us. All right, that's it. Let's uh, take a quick break. We'll be back after these words from our sponsors. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. Well, welcoming now Derek Gottfried, Chief Product Officer of Clear. And as the um, recent Axios article said, there's kind of a BFD going on uh, with Clear right now, and that is you're getting out of the airports and into fintech. Talk about um, what you're announcing, what's happening, and um, where you're going from here. Yeah, well, uh, for, it's great to be here. Um, thanks, JP. We're, we're not getting out of airports. We're expanding outside of airports. Okay, so going beyond. Just, just, just to be clear, uh, airports is really where you know we started to prove out our, our thesis around secure identity and what it does to unlock experiences. And so anybody that knows us from the airport knows that if you're a Clear Plus member that that's the fastest way to get to the other side. Great experience. Can confirm. Way. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. Um, and so how do we bring that to our partners in the digital space? And so we've done a lot of work. We really started some of this work when there was a travel slowdown around our health pass. And so enabled people to get back to live events. We had a great health pass product that allowed people to 
you know, confirm their vaccination status um, digitally. Uh, and out of those experiences, we had a lot of demand and we saw the market didn't really have a consumer brand friendly, reusable digital identity. And so we know, knew we always wanted to play in that space. That's been uh, kind of the long arc here. Uh, and so now is the time to take the next step. And prior to some of the work we're going to talk about in KYC, you know, we've set up partnerships with Avis, obviously in the travel space, super relevant for us, uh, for people to fast lane through that experience with healthcare, a, a regulated industry. And so that maps well to the things we've done in the airport. And then we've also done digital marketplaces and LinkedIn. Uh, and so one of the things that we were always uh, interested in was what, what does the uh, financial services marketplace look like? Uh, obviously, lots of regulatory and compliance, risk fraud, but not always the greatest consumer experience uh, in terms of what account opening looks like, how you verify yourself. I don't think anybody's gone through that uh, and said, wow, that was great. And so at Clear, uh, when people go through the Clear lane at the airport, they say, wow, that was great. That, that was a time saver. I loved it. And we think there's an opportunity there. And we're really excited to make our acquisition, which we made earlier this year, in Sora ID, small startup, amazing tech, great team. Uh, which you acquired. Which we acquired. Uh, and, you know, one of the nice things about them is that they were maybe 10 blocks to the east of us in New York. And so we got to spend a lot of time really understand that they had a shared vision for what a reusable digital identity looks like uh, and lots of experience in the KYC space. So when we've, we've acquired them, um, we're merging our product lines, and it's really about how do we provide a branded consumer experience so people want to know that uh, their identity is tr you know, going to be protected, that it's trusted. We have a strong bond with our members, people that have used us before, put a lot of faith in us. Uh, so that's very sacred to us. But how do we let them unlock other experiences? And KYC, highly regulated, not too different from what we do in the airport, uh, with different set of constraints, how do we do that digitally? And so they brought a lot to the table in terms of everything around PEP and OFAC and AML and sanctions, uh, lots of configuration opportunities. And we want to marry that with our, you know, what we think is uh, best in class user experience. In addition to the millions of members that we've already verified. And so these are uh, really desirable members in the sense that these are fruit travelers, these are the high net worth individuals that I think are pretty attractive, uh, that definitely value time, definitely value the clear brand, and allow us to leverage uh, our member base and allow them to leverage new partners for an expedited onboarding experience and even uh, re-onboarding. So if there's any other uh, checks that need to move, take place, we provide those as well. And we've seen a big lift in terms of what that looks like versus what we see in the market today. So you mentioned your current customer base being attractive. So part of this being successful is going beyond that customer base, right? Because this really needs to work for everyone if yep. it's going to work in financial services. What kind of hurdles are you anticipating? I think this is where... Um, we're, we're a pretty different company in the sense that we have always had, um, when we think about our members, really a hospitality mentality. 
And so we view you as members. Uh, we create a long-term relationship with you. And so part of that starts with the kind of onboarding experience. And so it's not um, a traditional transactional model uh, for, the, for the member. And so it's really that top line experience where we think that um, it, it has different conversion metrics. And ultimately our partners want to get everybody through it. I mean, at the end of the day, we would love people to say, wow, clear that, what a great experience. That is an incredibly high bar to set for yourself. I don't think anyone has ever uh, done any kind of account opening or KYC has said, wow, that was, that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's the goal we set for ourselves. And so it's not just our existing member base, it's making sure that there's an onboard ramp for everybody to join. Yeah, nobody wants a KYC experience, right? I, I, mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of great reasons for it to exist, and, and um, it should exist. Uh, but yeah, it creates friction, and our whole point has always been frictionless. Now you've mentioned uh, members and your branding. Is the clear branding an important part of the value proposition, or will this also be white-labeled, kind of powered by clear inside of banking apps, that sort of thing? It's one of the things that we're exploring, right? And so we think the brand is one of the real strong appeals. Uh, that brand alignment brings a lot of comfort to the members. Uh, also, we've spent a lot of time on that experience. And so to have a branded experience, to know what you're getting, to see that clear verify button and click it and know what's gonna happen, know that you're just seconds away from finishing this process, we think that brings a tremendous value, right? And so we're looking at different opportunities to work inside the embedded space. I know people have lots of existing ways of working. And so we want to be respectful of that. We understand there's some, there's a, a, a kind of a proven model, but we also think this is a new model uh, because no one else has this existing member base, has a focus on these, these type of experiences and bring the brand that we have. And so that's really where we start to differentiate. We're really excited about the reusable nature. So nobody just, you know, you might have uh, a bank, but also a broker. Maybe you have some crypto, maybe you're doing uh, ACH somewhere else. And so the number of times that you would do that. And so we're looking for what we consider concentric circles of overlap between our airports, what we've done with LinkedIn and Avis, and what we would do in the financial services area. You mentioned LinkedIn. Talk about what that partnership has been so far and, and where does it go from here? Uh, I mean, I, I would say one of the great things, it's a really strong partnership, and that's really who we, we, we look to work with uh, and really co-develop. And so for them, it's really been about uh, upgrading uh, the quality of their network, right? And so less regulatory fraud risk compliance, but the LinkedIn network is better if we actually have high confidence, if we know who we're dealing with, whether it's posting jobs or uh, sending messages, any of those things. Uh, and so we do think that identity is gonna be foundational. We like the KYC space in the sense for us, it's, uh, it's better defined uh, in terms of there's a regulatory compliant, everybody sort of has to do it, everybody has a little bit different take on it, but that's why we think there's a lot of opportunity there for us as well. For something like LinkedIn, I mean, today that's optional, right? Yep. You, you, you can opt in for that. Uh, is the long-term plan for that to become a part of the standard? Uh, I, I hope so, right? Identity? So I think that's one of the things we work with LinkedIn. We want to make it so easy that it becomes uh, a standard part of many platforms. We think 
any digital marketplace that you go and participate in, uh, whether it's vacation rentals, any peer-to-peer, -peer, we think that that will come. And we think that uh, while some of the specific stuff around KYC will be kind of standard to that, we don't think that there's, we think that the gap is actually going to close uh, and the idea that you know who you're dealing with. Um, and even outside the financial services, when we talk to people and say, do you know your customer? They don't know the acronym of KYC, but they want to know their customer. They want to have a better and deeper relationship. But they can't have friction. They can't have drop-off. They have to think about the, you know, the uh, TLV of that customer. Uh, and so that's where we think we can differentiate. Yeah, it's balancing that desire for the level of trust and transparency with the friction that it takes to get there. I mean, for LinkedIn, they could have just charged $8 a month to everybody. We've heard of other folks that have done that, and I think, uh, you know, that's an interesting play. We would love to help them out if they wanted to work with us. Um, but I do think, like, even there, you can see the value. So I think there's a lot of ways to go out and tackle it, but I do think when you know who you're dealing with, uh, you're able to move faster, move with more confidence. Um, and so like, how do we get everybody over that hurdle? It's really important. Yeah, it, and all jokes aside, I, I, I get the value proposition of saying, no, this is actually me as someone who has been, uh, you know, spoofed and impostered, <laughs> you know, many times on many platforms. Uh, I like that idea, but uh, paying $8 a month and something didn't work for me. And I will tell you, I'll, I'll give you one minor uh, quibble. Uh, Please. Pr we love product. feedback. Yeah. We Can we do product feedback. support yeah, right yeah, here? Absolutely. This, this call is recorded. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I try to uh, verify on LinkedIn, but because I go by JP oh, professionally, yes. that's not my birth name on my identification, even though I'm already a, a Clear Plus member yes. because I travel a lot. Um, and so I was bounced from that. Yes. So, well, I, first yeah. of all, I would say try again. They've okay. spent a lot of time on upgrading that experience. This is a, um, a classic name matching problem. Yeah. Uh, and so I do think like this is something we're getting better with and we work pretty closely with LinkedIn uh, to solve on this one. But yes, this is this is a, a known issue, uh, <laughs> one that we take very seriously. Uh, we want to definitely... JP, I think we probably can like solve for that one today, uh, but uh, we, we definitely ran into that kind of as we got to launch. I think it's one of the, the things that we look for when we start in a new segment like that is working with the right partners. Yeah. Because we were on top of it with them. They were great uh, coming up with suggestions, and so it has been a real partnership and not just a vendor relationship, and so... Exciting. Well, and I suspect that there's lots of green space for you at that kind of level of verification, right? LinkedIn isn't, it, being verified on a platform uh, is helpful. When we're talking about financial services, it's far more than that, right? It's required, right? Know your customer, um, Bank Secrecy Act. Um, I, right. Yeah, I think so. And yeah. I think that th the thing to think about that, though, is is that if you think about money is in some ways the original social network, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's a way to exchange, and we think about nodes. And we do think a lot about um, identity and the money network, payments and everything else. And we think uh, there's lots of solutions in the marketplace today. They're not really consumer focused. They're kind of bolt on from the side. They're not, they're not member focused. They're not experiential. 
So there is a big opportunity, we believe, for payments and identity to get much closer in terms of you can see all kinds of challenges. You know, no one knows anybody's routing number or Ethereum address or phone number that's SIM swapped away. So we do think there's a lot of opportunity to upgrade those experiences by working with uh, those networks. So the, the compliance side is super interesting and obvious. I say the network side uh, and what is a reusable network identity coupled with the movement of money uh, is a huge opportunity going forward that we're excited to be a part of. Well, particularly as you talk about the intersection of identity and money, and as that becomes a part of real-time payments and being able to you know, expedite things quickly. I don't have time to fill out a stack of forms and <laughs> yes. you know, wait, wait for approval on Eliminate that. Eliminate the clipboard. Right, and the third, um, you know, circle in that diagram then is fraud, right? So fraud prevention through identity, but also, uh, you know, what you have and are growing and developing is quite a treasure trove of identity. How do you protect all of that? I, you know, that has been, uh, you know, job one uh, from the very beginning. Luckily, when we started and really were focused uh, in the airports, uh, working with TSA, Department of Homeland Security, they've provided no shortage of guidance, oversight, <laughs> and regulation, which oh, has Oh, been, they asked a few questions they about have this, asked did they? A, yeah. yeah, yeah, there's been a couple. Um, and so they've been a great partner, but they've really kind of set the tone and posture that we have uh, in terms of protecting that. Uh, and then really through our, uh, our, our leaders, like uh, Karen and Ken, our CEO and our president, they have made sure that um, we're member focused, right? And so it'd be very easy to build some of these things and not be as member focused. Uh, but it comes back to that kind of hospitality experience, the obsessiveness. And so while we do think that there is a, a lot of data there, we do spend an enormous amount of time and energy to make sure that it's secure and that we are able uh, to make it actionable by our members, right? So that's really ultimately their their data. We are stewards of it, and we are ones that are going to help them manage that. Uh, and so we take that pretty seriously. But we have no shortage of security and compliance and complexity in that. And no shortage of government oversight and, um, you know, questions and concerns about that. What do you need over the long run from... Um, you know, legislation or, or um, you know, rules in terms of governing, because we don't really have a lot of set standards around identity today, right? I would say, you know, this is where, uh, first of all, we have a great public-private partnership with the TSA, uh, and so we think that's a really good model overall. Uh, we do think that identity, in a lot of ways, is uh, pretty distributed to, at the state level, right? So you think about uh, all the DMVs that are issuing driver's license, right? Really focused on driver safety, but also some federation of like identity. And so we do think, um, we don't think that there will be a national identity system like anytime soon, right? I think there's probably a lack of Would appetite you want for one? that. Uh, I think that that is where, um, Companies like Clear can provide a, a great solution that I think would be more responsive to the market than a kind of top-down, heavy, heavy approach. Um, and so I think while all those standards are great, I think we're able to 
be a little more responsive to the market and technology as things evolve. Uh, and so, same way we care about experience. Again, maybe not the greatest. So it wouldn't experience. hurt, but you're not going to say you want it. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Fair so enough. I would say. Um, there are areas where we'd love to see more kind of regulatory uh, clarity, right? And so I think, you know, for all our friends in the crypto space, we would love to see them have a little more regulatory clarity uh, so they can operate more consistently. Uh, we do think there is a regulatory need there. Uh, so we, we generally welcome regulation. We just want clarity there. Um, I live in the state of Washington, and we've been uh, kicking the can on the real ID. Uh, I think it's now 2025, right? They've been telling us since yeah. about 2019 that you, which I do. I have the enhanced driver's license, which means I can uh, cross the land border into British Columbia, which I do every now and then, uh, you know, without a lot of friction there. But, um, uh, y you know, you've got that times 50, right? On, on, and I think that, and I think, IDs. you know, um, you know, we're very interested in some of the newer, newer standards. The mobile driver's license, the MDL, looks uh, awesome, and we're fu fully aligned to support it. Is like another way uh, to help our members. But we also think that that's going to be a, a long play. Uh, I think the adoption curve for all 50 states to hit the right level is going to take a bit of time, and I think there's still still a bit of a fragmented market where we see. Some states coming out with apps and other people using kind of the, the native platform wallets. So I think I think it'll continue to be fragmented. And ultimately, this is where I think Clear can provide something of a unified view of that. And so, you know, I was with one of our partners the other day, and they literally said, "I'm so glad you're doing all this work because it seems really hard to go and normalize, bring sanity to to what." not even just in the U.S., but internationally, what that looks like. And so... Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask next. What about outside of the U.S.? Where are you playing today, and what are the next frontiers? Uh, I mean, so we have no limit on frontiers. <laughs> and we think identity is universal, so eventually mm -hmm. we want to play everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, today, obviously, we're homed in the U.S., so that's our home turf and where we think we have a lot of room to grow. Uh, we're live in Canada and Mexico uh, from an identity standpoint, for our clear verified standpoint. So those users of LinkedIn, for instance, in Mexico and Canada are, can also verify. Uh, we have some international footprints beyond that, and we are working on plans to extend outside and usually, you know, the obvious places, Western Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, those, those places are like high on the list and, you know, not ready to commit to a date, but uh, internally we've committed to a date, I can tell you that. Okay. Um, well, let's drill back down on the fintech uh, a little bit and, and talk what you can about timeline there. Where are you today? What kind of milestones uh, can we look forward to? What you know? What's in progress already and what's the roadmap look like? Yeah, the, the biggest milestone that we're excited about is the uh, complete unification of, uh, of the SOAR acquisition into the Clear Verified stack. And what that will give us is access to all our Clear members, uh, which is tens of millions. It will give us a new experience that's branded with lots of opportunities for putting it in embedded applications uh, that we think will be best in class. Uh, it's going to give us uh, a layer of configuration that we quite frankly haven't had before and so you can really choose at what fidelity you want. It's going to bring along all of the 
OFAC, PEP, AML sanctioned stuff that really completes out the product. Uh, it has a great case management piece on top of it, which we weren't really focused on before. So anybody needs to go and do adjudication, we have that capability coming. Uh, and so we are out partnering with folks today, working on getting them set up. And so anybody that's interested, please. Great. Well, how can people find out more? Uh, I mean, clearme.com is uh, number one. Or anybody can find me online and just hit me up and reach out to me. I'm happy to field anybody and everyone's questions. Great. Anything we should uh, talk about I didn't think to ask you yet? I don't think so. I think you're very thorough, JP. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. We'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.